Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Ralph Young, a professor of history at Temple University. His book, Descent, The History of an American Idea, published by New York University Press, is the topic of this show. Young provides a fast-paced, 400-year people's history of dissenters in America and the role they played from early New England settlements to occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party. From Shays' Rebellion in the late 18th century to contemporary gay rights and anti-globalist movements, dissenters built their politic on the nation's founding as a project of dissent. As a group, they were committed to actualizing the lofty ideals embedded in the founding documents by extending equality and freedom to women, slaves, Indians, workers, and other excluded groups. In times of crisis, dissenters called the nation back to its promise even as conservative forces resisted change. Some dissenters, celebrated as heroes, call the nations to its highest ideals. Others remain lost to history or vilified. American history, seen from the vantage point of those who stood against the status quo, illuminates the important role dissent has played in the nation's political and social development. Young offers an abundance of examples of how political, religious, economic, and social protest shaped the nation and the possibilities of further change. Here is my conversation with Ralph Young. Now let me introduce you to the author, Ralph Young. Ralph, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. I want to discuss the larger themes in your book, but before we get started, I want you to tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Dissent. Well, I've, uh, you know, I'm kind of, I guess, a, a child of the 60s. I was participated in some civil rights demonstrations and um, um, anti-war demonstrations back in the late 60s. But um, what got me interested in the book and the course I teach at Temple University on Dissent is, um, oh, maybe 15 17 years ago, uh, the head of the honors program asked me to develop a history course for honors students that would be on a theme. And I thought, well, what theme really interests me? And I thought, dissent. And so I started putting together a course. And what I had students read were the documents of dissenters, uh, because I wanted them to read their own words and make their own judgments on them. And at first I thought the course was going to be primarily about the 60s, but the more I did research and preparing for it, it goes right back to, you know, before the colonies were even settled. And, uh, and I actually, when I'm doing the course and the books, I really start kind of with the Protestant Reformation and the development of Puritanism and religious dissent in England, and then these dissenters came over. Um, and so 
the course just kind of developed from there. And then, you know, I, I put together a book, Descent in America, Voices That Shaped a Nation, which is a doc, you know, a, a compilation of all these documents by dissenters. For example, Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, some of the obvious things, but also a lot of obscure things. Then about you know, well, it was 11, no, more than that ago. Around 2004, I decided I should write a narrative history of dissent, you know, all in my own words. And sort of like Howard Zinn's People's History, except that he's looking at it through the lens of class, and I'm looking at emergency through the lens of dissent and protest. And so that book, Dissent, the History of an American Idea, actually wound up I started working on it in 2004, and it was finally published in 2015. So it was a, a long haul, um, although I basically could only really write during the summers and, and in between semesters. I couldn't really spend the effort in working on it during the actual school year. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the development of it. And my basic thesis in the book is that dissent is central to American history, that we were, uh, we, the nation itself was born out of dissent. In the 17th century, religious dissenters were kind of dominant, although you did have political dissenters like the Bacon's Rebellion in the late 17th century. By the 18th century, political dissent built to such a point where we had the revolution, which then, of course, established the United States. And then when we wrote the Constitution, we put the right to dissent in the First Amendment, and you know Americans have been dissenting ever since. Abolitionists protesting slavery, women fighting for the right to, to vote, workers fighting for the right to unionize. Um, every war in our history has had dissenters. You know we've had most of the modern civil rights movement and all the minority movements since then. You know from uh, you know even environmentalism, along with Chicano, American Indian movement, gay rights, and all that. Now, uh, how has this study, you know, we can look at American history through so many lenses, but this particular lens of dissent, how has it shaped or changed maybe the way you view American history, and have Americans lost sight of this? Um, I think a lot of Americans have lost sight of it, although... Lately, we're certainly getting a lot of activity going on. Um, you know, one thing that's kind of always irked me, back in the days of the Vietnam War, or even when George W. Bush invaded Iraq, when people were protesting, they would be constantly being called unpatriotic. And I argue that there is nothing more patriotic than dissent. People who are dissenting are expressing one of the most fundamental, central features of what the United States is all about. And, you know, in a sense, dissenters uh, look at the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as if they were contracts written by the government. You obey our laws, we are going to protect your natural rights. And there have been groups all through our history who felt that their, their rights were being denied them by this government. And so they, you know, some of the dissenters, they quote from the founding documents in their protest. In a sense, they're holding the government's feet to the fire. You, know, you promised this, you wrote this down, and now we're going to hold you to it. Now, the thing about the, the dissent and that I thought of right away was, what is it? 
Okay, is it just merely political disagreements? Is it just part of the democratic process? Or is there something, uh, can you define it in more, uh, a more precise way rather than just, well, it's just part of people disagreeing and just coming to terms with what we're going to do next? Yeah. Well, there's, you know, in, in, in the introduction of the book, I spend several pages trying to define dissent. I mean, on, on the broadest level, it's going against the grain, going against what is, whatever that is, is. Uh, people are protesting against the status quo. Most of dissent and the most of it that I concentrated on are people demanding more rights, demanding the rights that they are supposed to have. Now, there is some dissent that tries to withhold rights, you know, to go back to, uh, you know, to take rights away from certain groups of people. Um, there is dissent, there's political dissent, there's religious dissent, there's economic dissent, there's cultural dissent. Uh, all of these, you know, have been, you know, I deal with in the book. Uh, you know, for example, you know, uh, you know, political dissent leading to the American Revolution or the Civil War. You had, uh, you know, religious dissenters, you know, you know, as I mentioned in the 17th century, but even to this day, you have people protesting against uh, when the government kind of, when the Supreme Court ruled against uh, prayer in public schools, people have protested against that. So, you know, on some level, it's kind of just sort of disagreement. But on another very profound level, it's people are demanding that the United States live up to its promises, that the United States... Uh, kind of be the United States. You know, like we, we look at our founding and our heritage and we're, I think all of us as Americans are very proud of, you know, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights and, you know, these basic principles that we, uh, you know, these lofty ideals that we have spoken about. And quite often those lofty ideals are not being upheld. And so I think, you know, the, the bulk of dissent is people pushing uh, that, you know, okay, the United States has this ideal vision of itself. Well, let's make the reality more closely resemble that ideal vision. So in a way, uh, dissenters, people think of them as unpatriotic, but I I see them as actually believing profoundly in America. Exactly. Exactly. That's, I, I think that is kind of the central point of it, that, you know, if you really didn't, love America, and if you didn't, you know, value those principles, you wouldn't bother to dissent. You'd maybe, you'd maybe leave or something, but the fact that you do love the country and that you value these ideals that we've committed ourselves to, then when you see problems, like they, like in the 1830s and 1840s, many Americans saw slavery as a big problem, and, you know, you had the abolitionist movement form, and eventually, of course, this winds up leading to the Civil War, which, of course, winds up ending slavery. Um, so then, of course, kind of an ironic thing is that most, well, maybe not most, but much of dissent actually spawns its own protesters. You know, the uh, when the women's suffrage movement was really gathering steam, you suddenly had the anti-suffrage movement protesting against them. Um, when the Civil War ends with the destruction of slavery, you have the birth of the Ku Klux Klan trying to 
turn back the clock to the days of white supremacy. You know, so they're protesting against the new reality, the new you know society in which is you know slavery does not exist. That was interesting about your book that you it, you're not just talking about dissenters. We usually think of them as being people on the left. But you're also talking about people that are on the right, which we, which we consider more reactionary, um, as dissenters. Yeah, yeah. And it's it that's kind of that was interesting to me. And then you and one of the things that you talked about is that there are different kinds of dissenters. You you kind of say there's reformers, there's reactionaries, there's radicals, and there's revolutionaries. Can you kind of talk about those different kinds and uh, what brings them together? What makes them Separate, which is probably one of the one of the major problems with dissent in our country is that there's so many different kinds of dissenters and they can't all get together and right. figure out what they want to do. Yeah. Well, you know, this kind of really became uh, very obvious during the progressive movement, you know, between the 1890s and the 1920, when you had a lot of middle class reformers trying to do something about the victims of industrialization. Mother Jones comes to mind, who led a children's march from Philadelphia to New York to try to get, you know, call attention to how children are being exploited in the workforce and being robbed of any education and all this. And, and she became a, became a really important figure in doing away or, or creating a situation where uh, government kind of regulates child labor. So like today, if you're 14 or 15 years old and you do get a job, there's all sorts of forms, governmental forms have to be filled out to protect you. Um, so in a sense, this was kind of just, you know, uh, you know, a, a significant reform, but not exactly really radical and all that. But at the same time that you had Mother Jones, who incidentally also was a socialist, um, you know, and she helped found the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. You had Eugene V. Debs, the socialist. You had Joe Hill. You had Emma Goldman. Uh, and these were much more radical in their criticisms of American society and basically wanting to overturn capitalism and convince the United States that we should be a socialist country. And then, of course, you have, you know, like revolutionaries who basically don't really want to transform the country that much as they want to uh, bring it down, to destroy it. And, and of course, today uh, we have, you know, this problem with terrorism, which, of course, you know, most terrorists are not actually Americans, although that we do have homegrown terrorists and all that, but they're not interested really in reforming things. They're interested more in turning, you know, in tearing it down. So that's more anarchism. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certain terrorists, you know, and and radical revolutionaries have, you know, agendas that they would like to do, not just necessarily uh, be an anarchistic kind of kind of revolt. Okay, so. Um what what are the tools that dissenters have used, uh, and how effective have those tools been? And what have been some of the more effective tools of you know? Because a lot of dissenters dissent, and then they kind of go away. Nobody pays attention to them, and they're gone. Um, there's a lot more dissent movements and dissenters than you actually have in your book because you can't cover all of them. But can you can you um, talk about? What, who have been the most effective dissenters in terms of and what tools were they using 
that really kind of help them be effective? Because I think that that would be a lesson for us today. Yeah. Well, you know, the women's suffrage movement uh, was successful. The civil rights movement was successful. They, they finally accomplished their goals, although for the people that were fighting you know, and dissenting at that time, uh, they were very exasperated how long it took. I mean, it took a long time for women to get the right to vote, and they fought very hard for it. Um, they used techniques like, you know, picketing the White House, mar you know, doing marches on Washington. Um, one of the interesting things is that on the day after, no, the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration in 1913, Tens of thousands of women descended on Washington and marched through the streets. More people were protesting, demanding the right for women to have the right to vote uh, than actually attended Wilson's inauguration. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, I, I certainly was thinking about that on January 21st this year when there were women descending on Washington protesting the new administration, sort of, you know, kind of repeating something that had happened once before that did have, you know, a level of success. Eventually, these women, it took them a while, but they convinced uh, Wilson to back the women's suffrage amendment, and which he finally did at the end of World War One. Now, when we, when we think about women's suffrage, for instance, and it's, you know, political, a political victory and a political mm -hmm. battle, the reason it took so long could it be that it took so long because there had to be uh, other cultural changes to al allow that to happen? In other words, was the political fight really the main thing that caused them to win, or was there other other things are going on? Women going into the workforce. There's a, changes are happening so rapidly that kind of the cultural support for women not voting was falling away. Yeah, and that's ex exactly another feature of dissent. Um, I kind of liken it, dissent is sort of a process of erosion. Dissenters are pushing against the system all the time, and, and, and this is what makes a dissent movement successful, is that they slowly chip away at enough of this, this uh, foundation that's, that they're fighting against, that they start getting more and more people to see their point and um, move over to them. And of course, the changes in the workforce, changes in you know, the fact that more and more women were working. But this is also the case with the civil rights movement, with the gay rights movement. Gay rights, for example, has been extraordinarily, extraordinarily successful in a much quicker time than either the women's movement or the civil rights movement. And part of that is that more and more people, you know, just, you know, they see the demonstrations that gay rights activists have led and participated in, but more and more people are meeting, you know, gays. They maybe families have a son that tells them one day that he's gay, or some of their best friends are, and and slowly that's kind of this process of erosion that people who maybe were very much against, say, same-sex marriage, uh, eventually you know, kind of come over to the idea of accepting it um, kind of on their own, certainly influenced by the demonstrators and protesters, but also just influenced by societal changes and kind of opening their own minds to a new reality. 
And I think about the role of the artist in that, in that case, the artists, people who write and paint and do music, that they also made uh, gay people visible. Yep. And, and sort of in a way, people began to see more of it, and they said, well, okay, maybe this is not as scary as we thought. Uh, so that's a, that's a cultural underpinning to the actual political victory. Exactly. Yeah. And when people can start, stop fearing the change, stop fearing the unknown, um, they begin to, you know, uh, just kind of, you know, why find that, find that they're kind of agreeing with things that they didn't agree with just a short while before. Now, today we hear the word resistance a lot, resist, resist, and people are trying to do that in different ways. They're doing petitions, they're doing marches, they're uh, calling their congressmen, uh, writing letters, uh, civil disobedience, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, but there's a part of this that can be self-defeating, and, and, and I'm going to say this not because I think the sinners are necessarily guilt, more guilty of this than, than the reactionary forces, but... There's always a danger of violence uh, on, bo- on both sides, you know, of, 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 bre- of the descending process breaking down to where it becomes a self-defeating. Uh, so can you talk about the, uh, the, the role of, of violence, riots? Uh, I mean, there have been some, there's been in the past, you know, out-route out murder uh, as, a, as, a, as a tool of dissent. And, can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, violence is, you know, it's a descending spiral. When you start violently dissenting, you're not really convincing people. Um, one of the major goals of any dissent movement is, you know, you have people that agree with you and you have people that really disagree with you. But what you're trying to do is convince everybody who hasn't made up their mind about it, who might be apathetic. And violence usually turns those people off. But the, um, uh, of course, like say with the civil rights movement, when violence was perpetrated against the demonstrators, that kind of roused a lot of sympathy in the kind of non-committed public, as it were. But at the same time, you know, and as much as I favor nonviolent dissent and do not favor violent dissent, because basically violent dissent ultimately is not very effective. Still, the American Revolution was a perfect example of violent dissent, you know, and that created this country. Uh, John Brown's raid in Harper's Ferry uh, was violent, and he was condemned for it. I mean, but even the abolitionists who appreciated his goals didn't like his methods. And, of course, you know, his uh, hanging in December of 1859 was, you know, at, just kind of set the motion for the election of 1860 and Lincoln's election and the secession of the states. So a lot of historians will argue that John Brown's raid was the last spark to set off the most violent conflagration we've had in our nation's history. The uh, the the thing about uh, violence is uh, I'm thinking about, about the uh, the gun rights. You know, there's uh, the movement from the right about the right to bear, have arms. And then what happens is you've got some African-American people saying, yeah, we're going to get guns too, okay? And so uh, it's like, okay, as long as white people have guns, that's good. But when other people get guns, all of a sudden everybody gets worried. Yeah, well, that's what the Black Panthers did. Exactly, yeah. 
they started walking around carrying guns, you know, in Oakland, California, to make sure the police, when they were stopping African Americans for traffic violation, uh, you know, it was very intimidating. If you're a cop and you pull somebody over from going through a stop sign and suddenly there's 12 Black Panthers arms standing around you, you, you're suddenly on your best behavior. Yeah, it reminds me of Robert Williams, you know, the, who wrote the book Negroes with Guns. Uh, you know, he, he was, he, he felt, you know, we've got to defend ourselves from yeah. cops or whoever who's assaulting our families and our homes. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that was the, you know, the main thing, like, like Malcolm X, for example, he's, I think, people think that he advocated violence. He didn't advocate violence. He advocated self-defense. You know, he said, if somebody hits me and hits one cheek, I'm not going to turn the other one and hit him back. And that was very intimidating for white people at the time. But, um, you know, the thing, you know, with, with dissent, uh, you know, if, if you are getting involved in some movement that you think is really important, uh, you need to look at sort of the historical record and see okay, what dissent movements have been successful, what sort of tactics did they use, what what kinds of things were most effective? You know, when I've seen some, uh, you know, when it's some, sometimes I've been at a, a, a protest and you might see a bunch of people getting up there with a megaphone and they're cursing, you know, God damn this and, you know, calling the, the president every four letter word in the book. And that's just sort of, you know, kind of turns people off. But when you see, I remember during the Iraq war, you know, at Temple University, we were about a mile or so north of City Hall, and a whole bunch of students led, led a protest against the war, and they marched by candlelight down to, and it was silent. Nobody said anything. It was a very moving kind of thing. So you have to kind of figure out, you know, what is an effective means of getting your message across to people and winning adherence to it. Because you have to kind of you have to kind of convince the middle. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm kind of convinced that it's always the extreme right or the extreme left that kind of moves things in politics, and mm-hmm. the middle never moves. It only moves when pushed by the left or the right, you know, to move. And so yeah. you've got to convince the middle because that's the bulk where most people are. Exactly, and and the best way to to do that is. Uh, convincing them that your point of view is correct. Now, if you descend into violence to to try to convince that, that usually doesn't work. Now, there are a lot of techniques. I mean, there, there's so many forms people do. I mean, you can do a march, you can have a rally, you know, you can write letters to your congressman, you can go to a, your congressman's town hall meeting and throw hard questions at the congressman if you want to do that. Um, there are other things too. The, uh, as you mentioned, artists, you know, um, I've done a lot of research also into protest art and, you know, uh, whether it's political cartoons or, uh, high art or poster art or the signs that people carry in their demonstrations or graffiti, uh, all of this stuff is getting kind of a message to the public that is contrary to the mainstream message. You know, like the news media might will have a message, and then so you kind of bring out this counter message. Uh, art is the one way to do that. Music, I find, 
one of the most effective ways. I mean, you listen, you can listen to a speech by, uh, you know, some anti-war person, you know, denouncing war, and you might agree with it, you might feel really, you know, inspired by it, but then you listen to Pete Seeger's Where Have All the Flowers Gone, which is almost like this nursery rhyme, uh, and it touches a chord that, you know, and then you, maybe you're singing the song in your head for the rest of the day, and it keeps the message alive and with you, and you you realize, you know, the insanity of war. And so that, to me, I think uh, music is, is especially effective. Which I think music. we need more of. We need yeah. more uh, socially conscious music. Yes. Now, there's a, there's a quote in your book uh, from uh, Thomas Jefferson. Where he said, uh, a little rebellion now and then is a good thing uh, and is necessary in the political world as storms in the physical a medicine necessary for the sound health of the government. I thought that was a really good, good quote that you use there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a pretty famous quote that Jefferson has had, and you'll have people from the left and the right using that. Right, like the the right wing, you know, Second Amendment, Minutemen type of people uh, are really you know committed to that kind of notion, and but so too is is the left. Now, there's another issue, too, that happens with with dissent is, um, and I've, I've run across this, sometimes dissenters uh, on the right or on the left, whatever you want to be, uh, can ha- they kind of have a high moral, you know, attitude. Like they know exactly what needs to be done, and it's their way or the highway, uh, not compromising, um Rigid in their in their point of view, which makes it very difficult to have a conversation with them, because they're not willing to to consider other viewpoints or really think about it, because they feel like all oh, those viewpoints have been, have been tried and failed. Therefore, I have come to this conclusion, and this is it. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people are like that. A lot of people have come to a conclusion that they know is absolute truth, but of course, there's about a hundred different absolute truths in this situation. Uh, one, one of the things I do at, at Temple is for a number of years I've been leading these teach-ins on Friday afternoons and we talk about the historical background of contemporary controversial issues. And one thing that I point out to the students, I, I say one of the most difficult things for us to learn is the art of listening. I mean, we hear people talking, but you know, we need to just sort of really listen. Like when you're confronting somebody who disagrees with you. I mean, aren't we always, when that person is giving his point of view, we're not actually listening to it. We're just thinking, we're making up our response in our head. And maybe what we need to do is just not think about how we're going to respond to it, just listen to it. And there might be one or two grains of truth or something where you can connect in their argument that maybe helps you somewhat, you know, revise or, you know, think of some complexity that you hadn't thought of before in in your stance on something. And I think that's a very important thing for people to do is to, to listen to each other and not necessarily that you always have to compromise. I mean, you know, people, you know, I think one of the fallacies that people also have is like, well, this person says this and this person says that, and the truth must be somewhere in the middle. You know, but 
you know, where is the truth about the Holocaust? Is it in the middle between, you know, it's good or it's bad or slavery, you know, like, so certain things are pretty clear cut. Uh, but so one, I think, has to avoid that thing of that compromise is something that we need to have all the time. I mean, to a certain extent, compromise is important, but and some of the really significant issues, you know, we have to look at it within all of its complexity and seriousness. Right, and even if you're looking at something like slavery, and uh, uh, we all pretty much, I think, most of us all now realize that it is an immoral thing. Uh, and when you're looking at people in the past who were, you know, who believed in slavery, they thought it was uh, God-ordained, that it was a good system not only for themselves but for the slaves. And and, and, and trying to li- – you're looking at those people and trying to listen to their reasoning of why they think that, what they thought that. And, that there were, and they had some good, good reasons at the time that we yeah. know we've proven now that were not good reasons. But sometimes we kind of, if we're looking at history, it's really easy for us now to project back and, and judge the people in the past by the standards of what we know today. Because, you know, science was at a different place. Religion was in a different place. There were a lot of right. other things yeah. going on. And I think that, that the sympathy is what I'm thinking about. Yeah. You know, and even today, if you're de- dealing with somebody who you don't agree with, is trying to understand how they got there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And one of the problems, I mean, as historians, we always talk about the fallacy of presentism. Right. Uh-huh. Where we're putting our values on historical figures. And, you know, a perfect example is so many people with present-day values. They look at Jefferson writing in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, and yet he owns slaves. Well, And they think that's hypocritical. But it really wasn't for him, because basically what he's saying you know, he's writing this declaration. This is being addressed really to the members of parliament in London. And he's basically what he's saying is that we elite men in the colonies are equal to you in the British parliament. And, and of course, when he said all men, he meant men. He didn't mean women. And he meant white men. He meant white male, you know, male property holders. You know, he didn't mean the riffraff either. And that was basically the the mindset at that time that people uh, just believed these things. Like Lincoln, you know, sometimes people there will be books that Lincoln you know, say that argue that he was a racist. Well, he had the racial stereotypes at the time. He he on one level he felt that black men were inferior to white men, but he also did believe that regardless of what reasons separated the races, that everybody should have the ability to rise from nothing to wherever they could, their potential would take them, just like he did growing up impoverished and being an autodidact and learning, you know, teaching himself law and all this stuff and, and having the ability to advance. Right. So uh, this, this whole thing of trying to, uh, Put, you know, saying, for instance, a racist today is the same as Thomas Jefferson is just doesn't work because that, at that point, also, you've got the whole thing of race science that was considered science. It, yeah. You know, yeah. it was it was a standard of the day. Now we look at it, we know that science was wrong. And but at that point, there that's 
what people had. Yeah. And then right in the 19th century, there was this kind of pseudoscience where, you know, phrenology, you know, checking, you know, the size of people's skulls. Uh, you know, scientists did a lot of intensive research, you know, to basically to argue that why white European civilization was superior because these people were obviously more fit in all of this kind of thing. You had social Darwinism came on the scene arguing that, uh, you know, millionaires are the product of natural selection. And uh, this, you know, and, and people, you know, debated this stuff for, for more than 100 years. And even today, you'll still have, you know, people arguing um, that, you know, some people are more fit than the others. Well, you know, the, the issue, know, yeah, in gender science, you've got, you know, gender uh, researchers mm -hmm. who are, you know, trying to say, uh, based on biology, that there is a fundamental difference in, in the brains of men and women, uh, you know, and that's still, that's still being debated and making a lot of people angry. Yeah, yeah. But even, even of course, that, you know, like in, you know, in the 1840s, Margaret Sanger, the um, transcendentalist, uh, one of the, you know, really, Important figures. You mean, the, you mean Margaret so, Fuller? Uh, Margaret Fuller, yes. Yes, uh -huh. Margaret Sanger's <laughs> in the 1920s, yeah. Um, Margaret, you know, the two, the two Margarets of feminism, yeah. But Margaret Fuller, uh, argued that, you know, the mind, the brain, the intellect knows no gender. You know, the spirit knows no sex. You know, it's just what's in, inside of a person has nothing to do with race or gender, any of these things. It's just, um, and so, you know, she would, you know, was very much against this kind of uh, pseudoscientific thinking. Now, uh, one thing that you talk, you identify some ideas uh, that from the Enlightenment that spurred dissent and also ideas coming out of re re religious revivals as two sources of dissenting um, Ideas? Can you can you talk a little bit about the Enlightenment ideas that would have fed dissent? Mm -hmm. Well, the and a lot of the Enlightenment ideas, of course, you know, it, it starts. We can say it starts with Locke and the Second Treatise of Government, in which he's arguing that all men are born in a state of nature. You know, all people are born in a state of nature, and they all have basic natural rights, you know, life, liberty, and property. And you know, once he kind of you know argues this. And of course, what Locke was doing, he was trying to rationalize England's glorious revolution, why Parliament had the right to overthrow James II and install William and Mary, and just kind of was a, in a sense, somewhat of a propaganda tract to convince the people on the continent who still believe the divine right of kings. But anyway, you know, from the, from the 1690s all the way up to the American Revolution, these ideas, you know, got out there into the atmosphere. People, you know, educated people were discussing and debating, and you had other Enlightenment philosophers expanding on these things with Mont Montesquieu and uh, David Hume and Bishop Barclay and Voltaire and, you know, so many other uh, thinkers uh, that by the time you get to the American Revolution, you've had about 80 years of debating on all of these things. And of course, more and more people are arguing that, you know, yes, everybody has these natural rights. 
at the same time that the Enlightenment was kind of unfolding in the 18th century, you had the Great Awakening, which was kind of a turn away from the austere kind of Calvinism of uh, Puritan New England, and you know you had these religious revivals in which people were, uh, you know, kind of more ordinary people were having much more emotional connection with their religion. And the effect of this was kind of a democratizing effect. You know, people thinking, you know, turning away from the Calvinist notion that there is nothing you can do to gain salvation. You know, you are predestined one way or the other. Uh, to people, you know, seeking out spiritual experiences and feeling that there's something inwardly that I can do to gain salvation. And so, you know, this kind, these kinds of of thinking, um, you know, in the you know by the 1730s, 40s, 50s, are also getting out there, and, and people are feeling that there's you know in a sense each individual has more agency. They just don't have to submit to whatever the powers that be. And I think the kind of a combination of both enlightenment thinking and the Great Awakening. Uh, you know, fueled a lot of the forces moving in the direction of the American Revolution. And we can even go back further back than that, go to the Reformation, which was yeah. a, a total overthrow of the a priestly mediation between the, 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 the layperson and God. Uh, and that, and that started a huge dissent movement. Yeah, yeah. And that's why basically I, when I'm lecturing in my Dissent in America course, I start with the uh, Protestant Reformation and, you know, Protestants or protesters. And, um, and the kind of, what, one of the big, really significant effects of the Protestant Reformation was this questioning of the authority of, the, of Rome, of, you know, which had been for 1500 years the authority. And so suddenly, we get that famous 1960s expression, question authority. It's basically starting with Martin Luther. And the other thing, and I, I, I thought I should point this out too, is that dissenters all through the ages have always used the latest technology to get their message out. And at Luther's time, the Gutenberg press had just been invented. And so that made it easy and affordable to print translations of the Bible and also religious tracts and pamphlets. So that really got the message out. Uh, later, you know, in the 20th century, radio was used. Television was used. You know, the protesters, uh, they started getting more of an impact when their protests could be seen on television. Like in the 1950s, the civil rights movement really benefited from news casts of what was going on in, in the South. Also, you know, by the 60s, where you had a tremendous amount of protest, uh, one of the most effective means in the 60s was through music, through protest songs, which was using the latest technology of hi-fi and stereo, recording industry, radios, broadcasting, you know, hit songs like Blown in the Wind uh, or The Beatles' Nowhere Man and things like that. Uh, and now today you have, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all this. This is one of the ways that dissenters are getting their message out. Um, so, you know, think of these technological advances. Think of, think of music, protest music in the 60s as sort of the uh, social media of the day. 
it's getting the you know a contrasting message out to the public at large. Now, one thing that you uh, t- talk about, you go through the in- the history of America, but it seemed like the DNA the DNA of America has got descent in it. And once <laughs> after the American Revolution, you've got Shays Rebellion, and you've got women and and movements of African Americans, and you've got all kinds of people with saying, let's go further than the revolution. Let's do some, let's have a social revolution, not just this political uh, revolution. Um, and it seems like it's kind of in the DNA of the country. Uh, what is the, what is the situation you think of dissent today? And the reason I'm asking that is because if you think about the early Republic period or even the 19th century, the, the bureaucrat, the, the state was not as bureaucratic and as corporate as it is today. And it was actually, there was a lot of opening, a lot of room, uh, for change because it wasn't so, uh, solidified. But now we're dealing with a state that, that is highly bureaucratic, highly developed, um, I think harder to penetrate. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is very hard. And, um, and this is what, you know, the, dilemma that dissenters and protesters have is how to penetrate, how to get the message heard in the corridors of power where something can be done about it. Right. I mean, you're, you're fighting lobbyists, you know, corporate lobbyists that have millions of dollars behind them. You're, you've got uh, representatives who are insulated by staffers and bureaucratic systems. Uh, they represent a lot of people. You don't, it, it, you know, in the 19th century, the, the, the United States as a, as a state was still forming lots of openings for change reform of all kinds. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's true what you just said earlier that, you know, once people, you know, they got the idea that, okay, we have, we have a democracy, you know, and people can vote. And, and of course they began, you know, at first it was only, white men of property that could vote by the 1820s. That was expanded to all white men. By 1870, with the 15th Amendment, black men got the right to vote. In 1920, you know, all women got the right to vote. So it's, you know, like with each advance, it kind of spurs others to say, okay, we, we want part of this too. And so, but then also, uh, people... You know, they, they would question everything. People are questioning sort of, uh, it, you know, if I don't have these basic civil rights that I'm supposed to have, I need to protest for that. Uh, but once people get that, then they start thinking about uh, kind of sort of cultural dissent. I mean, when you think of the beats in the 1950s of the hippies, basically kind of rejecting middle-class morality and you know, basic American values, um, this has been done earlier too, you know, the transcendentalists. Uh, you had the utopian types, you know, the, like the Oneida community and Brook Farm and, uh, New Harmony in Indiana, people trying to set up these kind of socialist communes, rejecting the values of the society at large. Um, so you have kind of, uh, dissent sort of, it kind of, almost like feeds on itself. And, you know, with each success, you get more attempts at trying to, you know, achieve kind of this 
sort of society that you maybe envision as the perfect society. Of course, you know, I doubt if we ever get to any kind of perfect society, so dissent will always continue. Yeah, so what is what do you think the uh, the effective means of, of change are going to be now? Because, I, like, I look at, you know, the big, big uh, demonstrations and marches that we have just had recently, and I just, I'm very skeptical that that form of dissent is going to be effective now. Part of it is because even these demonstrations like the Women's March on Washington, uh, there was no singular agreement. It was just women showing up for whatever, you know, cause they had, their individual causes. And I don't know if you can really be effective when you don't have, uh, like, you know, the abolitionist movement, they had a a very specific goal. The suffrage movement had one specific goal. Yes, there were differences among women about suffrage, but boy, they stuck to that one goal. And I think yeah. now we don't have one goal. We have a gazillion goals. And I don't know if you can get anything done that way. I'm just asking you because you know about this. So, so anyway, no, I, I absolutely agree. And one of the things I thought when I, um, on January 21st, I went to the Philadelphia chapter of the uh, Women's March. And it was very encouraging to see, you know, so many people out there and uh, really kind of, you know, protesting, except for the fact that they don't have that laser focus that you need. You need to be on one thing. And I think that if uh, the protests that are going on now, uh, and, this, and, and they brought together some, some people are really concerned about the healthcare issue. Some people are concerned about immigration. Some people are, you know, all these different things that people have that are their, the major focus. And, and what needs to be done for any of it to be effective, it has to, Zero in on maybe one of these things, you know, like uh, let's say the uh, the, uh, the healthcare issue, and then if everybody just really focuses on that, and knowing that once we get some sort of movement or success there, then we can now focus on the Black Lives Matter issue or the immigration issue or one of the other multitudes of issues that we have. Um, the and, and of course, I think one of the biggest issues and and that kind of goes through almost all of this is the income inequality issue uh, and this kind of economic uh, disparity that exists in this country, which kind of is part of the, um, you know, result of what you were talking about, about how the, there's so much bureaucracy and in, in the, in the corporate, you know, structure of, of the government and, and all this, it's kind of uh, fits all together with this income inequality. And that's going to be one of the most difficult uh, things to do. I mean, it, like say for women's suffrage, it basically takes a law and it's done. You know, women have the right to vote or to do away with the Jim Crow laws. Yeah, that's done. But income inequality is going to be, uh, it's not going to be just one law that's going to change something. Yeah, it seems to me like, uh, well, we... What needs to be the focus needs to be on the process of government itself, uh, the way things are happening, uh, the machinery of government, that it has to be greatly simplified and and uh, 
I know that Mr. Trump said he was going to clean the swamp, but I think the swamp's just getting more polluted all the time. But <laughs> anyway, it's the process of government, and that's going to take not protests. It's going to take people getting in there, running, running for office, going in, uh, new new leadership. Because it seems like we're we're a lot of the leadership right now. We're living. We've got a 20th century government for a 21st century society. And it starts at the local level. You, know, you have to, you know, people who are really committed to to changing the society need to do things like run for the school board, and you know, get in a position like that. And you get enough people in there. Uh, you know, it's like you remember when the Green Party was being active, and then they would have a candidate for president. Well, that's sort of just a waste of time. They need to get Green Party people into local city government and all that, and then build a you know a, a following and build a party that becomes an effective political force. And so it's all very important to to work in your own community. Um, you know, as the, you know the famous uh, expression, you know, you can think globally but act locally. Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. And if you can build sort of you know a movement with you know locally like this, and people are seeing that this is effective and that it's you know it's gaining uh, important advances for people, then that's again that's part of that process of erosion I was talking about earlier. It's getting the 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 structure of society starts to decay then, and some new Paradigms, a new model kind of starts taking its place. Now, what uh, you you have uh, taught this uh, American history through the descent lens to undergraduates, right? And uh, it seems to me that it's a great service to undergraduates because when you are young, it seems like the world is the way it is because it's just sort of given. You know, yeah. it's just it's just the way it is. And yeah. and to have the idea, no, it's not just the way it is. It was the way it was made. We made the world, and we can remake it. So yeah. tell me about the response from from young people when you present American history in this way. I, you know, I, I love the response. I have them fill out a questionnaire at the end of the semester, like how has your views of dissent in American history changed, if at all? And so many of them say they they realize that uh, like a lot of the advantages that they have now they're only there because of un unknown people fighting for those rights back 100 200 years ago, and a lot of them say it gives uh, gives them the uh, courage and the inspiration to do what they can to make things better, you know, and just. And this is, you know, what I what I hope as a t as a teacher, you know, I want to inspire students to want to learn about themselves and the history that has made them what they are. And I think it's a it's a that's a way to self discovery. It's a way to learn how to live an examined life, a full life, and not just kind of become part of the the corporate mass and the, just another automaton or drone in this you know society which and of course society is all the pressures of society are to try to make everybody conform and so it's not wrong not to conform you know you need to kind of uh you know, you know figure out 
who you are and what is important and kind of move in that, in that direction. As, as Thoreau said, if, if you move in, in the direction of your dreams, you find a success uh, that you normally do not find in common hours. Very inspiring. That's good wisdom. I think we've got a stopping place. Um, right. Ralph, you have so been generous with your time. It's been fascinating. Thank okay. you. Well, thank you. Thank and you. thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. You can reach me at my website, LillianBarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>